I'll be reading the first four verses of Ezra. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place, with silver and gold, with goods and, his, and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, happy Mother's Day, all. You know what you and I have in common? We all have mothers. It's a stupid joke my Uncle John used to tell me. Um, how many of you, when you were young, ever wandered away from mom and got lost at some point? Okay. I've probably told the story before. I won't exhaust those details. We, we lost one of my children, who I won't name three times in the Tampa Zoo one summer. Not once, not twice, but thrice. We're lucky they let us take her home at the final occasion. Security was involved. They were asking if everything was okay and all kinds of things. It was interesting. Anyway, um, but if any of you have ever been lost, you may have remembered at some point your mother probably telling you that what you should do is retrace your steps. That's what mothers tell us. Go backward until you get unlost, right? Um... I've not always found that particularly helpful advice, because if I could remember my steps well enough to retrace them, I probably wouldn't be lost in the first place. But the principle is, I think, sound enough. If you are lost or in a bad place, the sensible thing would be to look back, see how you got here, and then do the exact opposite if you can. Now, of course, that's not always feasible. If you fall into a pit, you can't fall back out of it, right? Um, sometimes you can't go back the way you came. As Willy Wonka said of his factory, you can't get out backwards, you have to go forward to go back. Um, but retracing, I'm just saying, it, it makes sense. Because even if you can't go backwards, it, it does give a sense of direction, and it also, you learn from your mistakes, hopefully, right? Uh, now, I like to think probably of anybody in my house, I have a pretty good sense of direction, uh, unlike others uh, in my house that I won't name either. but uh, So I, I don't get lost very often, but it it's okay if, if, if you go on a, if you kind of get lost almost intentionally, if you go on a little detour and it's a scenic little drive, right, and, um, and the weather's beautiful like it is today and you're not in much of a hurry, that's fine. Um, but when you take a wrong turn and you end up in a bad or dangerous spot, your first reaction is to get out of there. And if you don't know how to do that, that's usually when people start to panic. And you ask, how did I get here? Maybe start to hear in your head that three dog nights, and mama told me not to come. And somewhere you're, you're hearing your mother's voice ringing in your ears, retrace your steps, my child. 
And again, you can't always go back the way you came, but it's certainly helpful to figure out how you got here. And that's sound advice, no matter what kind of trouble you're in. Uh, so you can't go forward by going back, but looking back makes sense as a first step. And those who don't know history, as they say, are doomed to repeat it. I think that was Santayana that said that, but the Old Testament seems to agree. And that's kind of where we're going to start today, because Israel is in a bad spot. Uh, they're kind of lost, and, and, and they need to start by retracing their steps a bit. Uh, last week, we wrapped up what turned out to be a 12-sermon series in Jonah. I want you to know I exercised restraint by keeping it to 12. It's a dense little book. There's a lot of layers. That's why I like it. Uh, but Jonah was a book about evangelism, right? And people who are bad at it. And uh, it, it was about God's mission to a lost world and our resistance to said mission. And I thought that Jonah was appropriate to our season as a church because evangelism needs to, I think, be a, become more of a priority for us. But today we're going to skip ahead a couple hundred years here to the book of Ezra. And since Ezra and Nehemiah were probably the same book originally, you're going to get two for one. We will do both. Uh, I've considered doing other books in between because it seems like some of these stories happened sort of concurrently, but we'll, we'll get to that later. Uh, but the only proper place to start is with Ezra. And why Ezra? Well, what could be better than Ezra? That's a bad pun for whole rock fans out there. I'm sorry, Joe. That's, that's... Uh, no, Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah are, are about restoration. Um, it's about rebuilding. It's about moving. It's about changes and the challenges that come with them. Uh, it's about God's faithfulness in hard times and over the course of many years. And the core meaning of the books is that God does not abandon his people. He remembers his promises and he restores them. And this is fitting, again, for our season as a church, because I think we need restoration. We need to be rebuilt, This not just in the sense of a new building, although that's part of it, but spiritually as well, I think. We need restoration. But restoration, while it's a wonderful thing, uh, it's not always easy, and God doesn't always restore things in the way we hoped or to the shape we were expecting, right? Uh, he may not even restore things to their original glory, or at least certainly not to our eyes. Uh, and, of course, his definition of glory is not the same of ours. That's why that happens. But but we as a church are in some ways in a rebuilding season, uh, and we could sure use some restoration right about now. Well, I could say amen if you like. But maybe it starts with retracing our steps. Uh, this story, Ezra's story that he's going to tell, it begins in a time when God's people had virtually nothing. They were lost in many respects. Uh, many things about their religion had faded. Uh, it was in danger of becoming extinct if they were there long enough. The Jews themselves, they're still alive, they're doing okay in a worldly sense, but much of their religious practice had ended with the destruction of Jerusalem, naturally. So they're living in a strange land. They have no clear national identity. They have no government. They have no homeland. And as an institution, they're like, essentially, they're, they're, they're a dead letter. And as a people, they're scattered and quickly becoming part of the new landscape. Um, many had simply blended into their new surroundings, and more than a few by now would have considered themselves to be Babylonian at this point. And it should be a familiar theme and thought for us as Americans, because, you know, this exile lasted ultimately 70 years. That's a long enough time to build a new identity over the generations, because old world traditions start to fade. 
That's true. That's obvious, especially in our American context. Uh, my, my father's family emigrated to the United States, the Italian side of the family here. That was about 100 years ago. The Italian heritage is still something we're proud of, but the fact is my, my very Irish wife speaks more Italian than I do. Um, my Italian identity is, a, is an American Italian identity. It's rooted in South Philly. And even that is a stretch because I've never lived in South Philly. I've never had to park on a regular basis on those streets. So I don't have any street cred down there or anything unless I borrow it indirectly from my father. My Swedish mother has more street cred down there because she lived there when they first got married. But in other words, all I'm saying is it's, it's like it's a joke to call myself Italian, especially when we have someone like Patrizia in the audience here. Like, I don't know, how can I pull that off? And it's a perennial question. How do you preserve the old ways, your old world identity, when you're living in a new world? And, and I think every immigrant community wrestles with this question because eventually that identity starts to get lost and it sort of morphs and changes and the new culture starts to rub off on your kids, right? Um, and the point is, is that Ezra opens up in this time when, when God's people are at a low point, it's not even a crisis point anymore. I wouldn't call it that because the crisis had kind of already happened. It's, it's just they're, they're lost and they're, they're displaced. They're shattered. It's like Humpty Dumpty. How do you put the pieces back together again? The days of the kingdom, that's a distant memory. It's, it's, it's like a rumor. It's like something old men in rocking chairs were talking about at this point, you know, along with the weather. But that's not something that's like current, right? The, the, the younger generations would be forgetting these things. The worship of God is becoming a footnote of history. And you reflect on that, and I think it's, it's not a far cry from, in some ways, where we find ourselves in, in America, in our current culture today, is it? Uh, a church attendance in America is dwindling. It has been for years. We are increasingly no longer identifying as any particular religion. The fastest growing religious group, if you want to call it that, is the nuns, people who refuse to identify as anything. And today, more than half of the Lehigh Valley falls into that camp. My understanding is that we are one of the least religious regions in Pennsylvania. And there's a generational divide within those numbers. The church-going are getting older. Studies say that about a third of all churchgoers in America are now senior citizens. Not to mention the average age of pastors in America is now 57. I like to think I'm pulling that number down a bit, and it's still at 57, you know. So the American church and the Western church, more broadly, we might say, is at a low ebb in a lot of respects. We can feel like we're lost, and we could use a rebuild. We could use restoration. And even for those of us who remain committed to Christ and his church, who show up on a regular basis, we have to live with a, a sort of daily struggle of being surrounded by a culture that has little to no interest and sometimes straight-up hostility to what we're doing. And, and it provides many temptations for us as well. All of us are tempted in countless subtle and not-so-subtle ways to imitate the culture that's around us. And I would say that they rub off on us a heck of a lot more than we rub off on them. Uh, and many of us wonder how we ended up in this place. How did the culture get this bad? How did the church get so lost? And, and we here at LBP, we may be asking ourselves some of the same things about our own church. And so what does restoration look like for us? And if we're lost, how do we get unlost? How do you get out of a bad spot? Well, you got to retrace your steps. 
And that's kind of how Ezra starts. Uh, we're in the story of God's people. As, as Ezra's beginning, uh, we're reaching the official end of the exile. Many of you are aware of the exile, the Babylonian exile. It's a pivotal point in the history of Israel, God's people. It's a major low point, in fact, one of the great heartbreaks of their, of their history. Uh, now, they had been enslaved in Egypt 1,500 years before all this, but when they were there, the Israelites had no basis for comparison. They hadn't had their own nation. It's kind of hard to miss what you've never had. The Babylonian exile was so horrible because they knew what they had lost. They had had a nation. They had had their freedom. They had had kings and warriors and an identity. They had God's very presence in the temple, and they had lost all of that. Well, the Babylonian exile wasn't just a bad or embarrassing defeat. It, it really represented God's withdrawing his hand of protection from them. And the author of Ezra, probably Ezra himself, wants to look back. He wants us to retrace our steps and remember how we got here. Like, why are we in Babylon to begin with? What went wrong? And he wants his readers to remember their identity in that way. And why do I say that? because what I just read doesn't seem to reflect it. But Ezra does something interesting here that you're not going to notice unless we turn back a page. And uh, I'll ask you to do that, to go back to the end of Second Chronicles. Uh, most of the first three verses of Ezra are lifted almost verbatim from the end of Second Chronicles. I'll admit I don't read Second Chronicles often enough that I noticed this independently. Somebody had to point it out for me that was more intelligent somewhere online. Um, but it's one of those things that stands out once you read it because, you know, enough so to the point that scholars for many years speculated that Ezra must have also written the Chronicles. Uh, most uh, historians don't think so anymore. But in any case, Ezra writes his introduction in such a way that his contemporary Jewish readers would absolutely make that connection because it ends in, in, in the same or begins in the same way that the other book ends, and they would know that Ezra is intentionally picking up where the chronicler leaves off. He's setting this up as essentially a sequel. Now, let me talk about Chronicles briefly because Chronicles, basically, if you've ever read that, uh, it rehashes many of the same stories that you would read in Samuel and Kings, but with a slightly different approach. Uh, the chronicler tends to give a more of a commentary on the old stories. Uh, he likes to explain how and why everything went wrong. Uh, it's really written as a record of Israel's failures. Chronicles was written around the same time as Ezra and Nehemiah for the same audience, and it's written as a warning to never let this horrible thing ever happen again. Chronicles is a record of the corruption and decline and downfall of God's people. And it makes very clear, even more than First and Second Kings, that, that God's people brought this calamity on themselves, that it's a self-inflicted wound. So when Ezra echoes the Chronicles, he's reminding his readers of not only how bad things were, he's also giving a not-so-subtle reminder that it's our own fault. And although we're starting in Ezra, I, I wanted to focus just a bit on what the chronicler says right before these lines, before this proclamation by Cyrus, where he explains exactly why the exile had to happen. So I'm going to look just beginning in verse 11, actually, with the final king of Judah before everything finally just goes to seed. Zedekiah. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, 
who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged, he gave them all into his hand, and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon, and they burned the house of God, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took it into exile in Babylon, he took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate it kept Sabbath, to fulfill seventy years. Why did the exile have to happen, according to the chronicler? Why was it inevitable that they needed to suffer this humiliation for seventy years? He gives a bunch of reasons here, right? But please observe that the blame is not directed at Israel's enemies, but to Israel itself, and not just the leadership, but everyone. The chronicler blames the exile on stiff necks, hard hearts, a lack of humility, a refusal to listen to God's messengers. He accuses them of unfaithfulness, breaking their vows, even vows to unbelievers imitating the sins of the world around them. He says they polluted God's house, and perhaps most of all, they showed a contempt for God's word. He says they mocked his messengers, scoffed at the prophets, and they despised the words themselves. And in their stubbornness, they refused to repent. They would not approach God. And yet God was patient. And he sent messenger after messenger, but in the end you have these terrible words in verse 16 that there was no remedy left. In other words, the easy medicine was no longer an option. They had chosen the way of pain. Could there be a more terrifying picture of God's wrath on this earth? Wrath without remedy. And it's funny, in the midst of all that, there's one pleasant word, one time where, where joy gets mentioned. The chronicler says it about the land. He says in verse 21 that the land enjoyed its Sabbaths for 70 years. It finally got some rest from all the wickedness of God's people. That's an incredible statement. The very earth groaning under the weight of the sins of God's people, and it was relieved when they were defeated and slaughtered and dragged away to Babylon. This was truly a dark time in history, and Ezra knows that it was completely deserved. The exile is not a, a question of political and military failure. It was about sin. Sin leads to exile. 
It's that simple. And again, I start thinking about this in relation to where the American church finds itself. The church on the whole, we know, is shrinking throughout the Western world. It's a little less true of the PCA and and other Bible-believing denominations, but it's definitely a reflection, I think, that the church as an institution somewhere has gone awry. Something's wrong with the church, and I suspect it's a sin issue. And a church that is not faithful is not worth preserving. The Babylonian exile teaches us that God holds a special grudge against the sins of his people. He finds it especially insulting when people take his name in vain. They, they bear that label, but they don't live for him. It's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 5 when he talks about not judging outsiders, but to purge instead the evil person from among you. Focus on the church. That's where he's concerned. And if God is willing to send his people into Babylon for 70 years to learn a few hard lessons, I don't think we can comfort ourselves that he would never do such a thing to the American church. Jesus threatened in Revelation to remove the lampstands of unfaithful churches. He is okay with letting institutions die because his kingdom will not be shaken either way, even if individual churches fail. Now, if this is a culture we're living in that is in trouble, and many of you would agree that it is, I think we need to work extra hard in that process, not to just gripe about the world, but to focus our attention inward. Because what landed God's people in Babylon was not the superior might of their enemies, but their sin. They're in Babylon because God sent them there. And the punishment fits the crime. Their hearts were far from God, so he figured, well, your bodies might as well be also. And he deprives them even of the right to worship properly. It's bad. And something else jumped out at me late in the week about this Chronicles passage that's even further insulting because he, the chronicler refers to the Babylonians as the Chaldeans. And yes, the ancient Chaldean Empire, uh, it is part of the Babylonian Empire. It was much smaller. But that's not what they're calling themselves at this point in history. It's using an archaic name. It's like calling Turkey Turkey today Asia Minor. Like, why would the chronicler word it that way? And it struck me in a new way. It's bec- I think it's because Abraham was a Chaldean. Like, before there was any such a thing as Israel, there was a Chaldean named Abram. And what made Abram special is only that God had called him out. He was called out of Ur of the Chaldees. He's special because God says he's special, not because of anything he had done. And that's what makes it so uniquely insulting that God's people would be sent back to where you came from. It's a sign of rejection, like tossing back a fish that's too small. Nobody wants to get sent back to wherever they came from. That's just not a very uh, encouraging thing to tell anybody. Go back to where you came from. It's like that line in Princess Bride. What does Vazini say to Fezzik? You want to go back to where you were unemployed in Greenland? It's just like, yeah, that's not, that's not encouraging. It's insulting to send something, something or somebody back. I don't even like sending food back to a kitchen at a restaurant. I'd sooner eat whatever's lousy in front of me. We were out with Earl and Mary Ellen a couple months ago down at Fegley's, and they served me a beer. It was the worst beer I've ever tasted. It was disgusting, and I drank that thing because I refused to go through the embarrassment of sending it back. God has no such reservations. 
He sends Israel back to where they came from. But even then, he doesn't abandon his people. Hard times, up to and including the exile itself, they are not a sign that God is absent. Difficult seasons don't mean God is ignoring you. Quite to the contrary, he might be just trying to get your attention. And I think that's true for us as individuals, and it's also true for us as a church. Now, we here at LVP, we're talking about moving we're praying for restoration. We're doing that in part because we've, we've been in a difficult season. I don't need to tell all of you that. Uh, we've had a lot of loss in the last couple of months uh, of various kinds, and most of it not natural. Um, right before all that, you know, the, we as a session, we, we, we went away back in the fall. We, we brought back a, a new vision and, and mission statement back in October. But you quickly discover, like, you know, saying so doesn't make it so. Like, presenting a new vision and living it out aren't the same thing. Uh, restoration, rebuilding, means work. And it takes time. And it doesn't happen overnight. And, and we're going to see that clearly as we go through Ezra and Nehemiah. Like, and you also learn that restoration means changes. We're going to see that in these books, too. Rebuilding can't mean business as usual. It means a new vigilance a new way of doing things. And you can't rebuild if you're in maintenance mode. There's nothing to maintain. And there's wisdom in looking back and retracing our steps so we can avoid repeating mistakes. I have done enough home projects, Jason can relate, uh, that I have had to do because I, I, I didn't learn from mistakes. I, I repeat my mistakes, you know? I'm not exactly Bob Vila. I'm much more like Tim Allen in Home Improvement. I was trying to explain that show to my kids earlier this week. Uh, you know, one, one of the things that's charming about Tim Allen in that show is that he, he never seems to learn anything, right? And uh, everything he does in his own house, in his garage, you know, on his show, uh, was unnecessarily dangerous. And I, I remember there's one episode where, like, the one son breaks his arm or something like that, and so they go to the ER, and everyone in the building knows Tim on a first-name basis, and he's getting high fives, and someone brings him a mug of coffee, and it's got his name on it, and, like, this kind of thing, you know? Like, this is a sign of someone who does not retrace his steps very well. He doesn't learn from history. He is set on repeating his mistakes. And it's very funny in a sitcom, but I don't want to be like that. And I don't want this church to be like that. And if we have made mistakes, and we want to avoid repeating them, and if we have, in some respects, been rebellious or stiff-necked or hard-hearted, if we are in a habit of imitating the sins of the world, if we have despised God's word by refusing to accept correction, and, and this goes for, like, yeah, not just broadly as the church, but you as individuals— if we have things we need to repent about, I think that the time to wrestle with that is now. Before we move into a new building or start any new programs or invest in anything else. For the same reason that you should repair the roof before you refinish the floor. Or why you patch the hole in the boat before you redecorate the cabin. Restoration goes hand-in-hand hand with remembering, and repentance precedes renewal. 
And the point is not to live in the past or to obsess over what was lost. The point is to humble ourselves before the Father and to ask him to use us again, whatever he's doing. And this applies not just to the church at large and not just to Lehigh Valley Press, right? Like I'm saying, like, you know, the elders need to wrestle with these questions. You all should be wrestling with these things as individuals. Because revival and restoration works the same for all of us. If you want to see revival in this church, it's going to start in the hearts of every one of us sitting in the pews. Start by retracing your own steps and thinking about what do I have to repent of? How do I need to humble myself before the Father? If we want to see this place rebuilt, that's a good place to start. But here's the good news, and there's always good news. Because I want you to see the gospel in these opening verses from Ezra, right? Ezra hints at the past, but the focus is on the future. And just as Chronicles doesn't end with the exile, but with Cyrus's proclamation, Chronicles, it's funny, Chronicles treats the exile itself like little more than a footnote. Seventy years of exile is reduced to half a verse there in Second Chronicles. And, and Ezra picks up that same theme. He wants us to remember how we got here, yes, but his primary focus is not on the punishment, it's on what God is doing now. Because God has not abandoned his people. Chronicles ends and Ezra begins on a note of hope. And that hope is not rooted in Cyrus, but in God himself who promised to restore his people. We are meant to see the contrast here between our unfaithfulness and the faithfulness of God as he restores his people because he is faithful. All of this history... All the world events that happen here, all the wars and the palace intrigue and the rise and fall of kingdoms and kings and the proclamation of Cyrus, none of this is an accident. It all happens, Ezra says, and the chronicler echoes it, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. The same Jeremiah that the king of Judah, Zedekiah, was it, uh, refused to listen to. The same Jeremiah who predicted the utter destruction of Jerusalem, the same Jeremiah who wrote lamentations in response to the exile, the same Jeremiah who prophesied disaster also prophesied restoration. And it comes in Jeremiah 29.10. It says, For thus says the Lord, when seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. The good news, in other words, the gospel news here, is that restoration does not depend on us. It rests on the promises of God. God promised to deliver Israel, and this deliverance is now at hand, and it comes not by an act of heroism or cunning on the part of God's people. It's not because they've turned things around, they've been holy. It's not because they were clever or they were brave or because they straightened up and earned it. And it's not because Cyrus was such a great guy. No, deliverance has come because God remembered his promise. And so he just does it. Why? Because salvation belongs to whom? To the Lord. Well, just as God promised to deliver Israel, Jesus promises to build his church. And he tells us that the fields are white and ready for harvest, and he's not waiting for us to straighten ourselves out. He wants us to retrace our steps, but to trace them back to him. 
and to humbly bow down and ask him to start rebuilding. Restoration is not about what we're going to do, but what God is doing. That's the story of Scripture. It is about God and what he is doing forever and always. He restores Israel. He brings them home. He gives them what they need to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple, not just to heal their wounded national pride, but so that a few hundred years after, he could send his son to minister in that very city. Because Jesus would be very familiar with Ezra's temple. And he would make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem through Nehemiah's wall. And he would be crucified outside those very gates to save people like us, living thousands of miles and thousands of years removed. Everything fits into this bigger story that God is telling. Sometimes he's just setting the stage for the next act. So this is not the end of Israel's troubles, but it's the beginning of more glorious things than they could have imagined. So, beloved, I would just say that God has bigger plans than we realize, and he will keep his promises, and it is wise for us to retrace our steps and to think about these things. But the point isn't to recover the glory days, but to see what God will do next. And to tell him, we want to be a part of it. Willy Wonka was right. We can't get out backwards. we got to go forward to go back. So let's humble, humble ourselves. Let's do that as a church. Let's do that as individuals. And as we humble ourselves, he will lift us up because that's what he does. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you that you are in the business of rebuilding. Lord, you restore your people. It's what you do. And it's not through anything that we earned or straightened up and, and, and did ourselves. Lord, we depend on you. Lord, we pray that you would teach us to humble ourselves before you. Lord, may we put, bow the knee before you so that you don't force us to. Lord, if we have unaddressed sins in our hearts, ways we are imitating the world around us as individuals, Lord, purge that from us. Help us to bring it forward, Lord. Give us repentant hearts so that we will not try to grow in our own strength, but only in what you are doing through your Spirit. Lord, teach us to do that this week. Yes, these things in Christ's name. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings